Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for our Corn and Soybean Outlook webinar. I'm Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor and the Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture also here at Purdue. So we're having our webinar today in light of the fact that USDA just released updated supply-demand estimates, not only for the U.S., but around the world. And the report yesterday didn't have a lot of new information, but we'll highlight what was new and think a little bit about some of the implications here longer term. So if you look at the corn balance sheet, there was really no significant change in the USDA's corn balance sheet. The corn ending stocks number um, really didn't change at all. Ending stocks as a percentage of usage still hanging around very close to that 10% mark that we often talk about in terms of that being kind of a, a tipping point. When that ending stock number drops below 10%, we start thinking about things being tighter and maybe a little more volatility. So USDA didn't change that. Although down the road, it would not be surprising if they do change that in future reports. Uh, the focus of the market, if you look at what's going on in the futures market recently, as well as this report uh, and some other information, has really been on what's taken place in South America. Um, USDA, again, this month, did reduce their estimated corn production coming out of Brazil. Uh, this time they dropped it by, I think, 39 million bushels. That puts it down to 4.49 billion bushels. Um, and if you look at the Argentine side, if there was a surprise, they made no change in their estimate of Argentine corn production. And I think a lot of people in the trade thought they might pull that number back in light of the adverse weather conditions Argentina has been experiencing and also to some extent southern Brazil. So I think going forward, there's a lot of people in the trade that expect to see some lower corn production numbers than what USDA had on this report. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out a little longer term. But I think if you look at the futures market reaction, clearly there's been an expectation that those numbers are tightening. Um, if you look at USDA's forecast, their forecast is still for record South American corn production. When you put Brazil and Argentina together, they're still at 6.6 .6 billion bushels. But most of the private forecasts that have been available here in recent days have been well below that. Um, it varies depending on the source, but clearly there's an expectation that we've seen some yield reductions uh, in, on the corn crop in, I think a lot of people think in Argentina, also to some extent in southern Brazil. And then concerns exist about where we're headed with the so-called second corn crop, the safrina corn crop in, in Brazil, which is in many places just now being planted. So the market is paying really close attention to what's going on in South America, and I think it's going to behoove all of us to pay pretty close attention going forward. Um, if you look at, instead of looking at ending stocks for the world, which is what I usually do, this time I went back and looked at the major exporters and looked at their ending stocks relative to world usage and, and put that data set together going back to 2000. And if you look at what they're at right now, uh, ending stocks at those major exporters, which, uh, you know, for reference, I guess we probably should mention who they are. Obviously, the U.S., uh, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, and Ukraine are really the major exporters around the world. I think Russia's in there as well, but Russia's actually pretty small. Uh, Ukraine has become much more important in terms of corn production and corn exports here in the last several years. But those are the major corn exporters. If you look at their ending stocks relative to world usage, USDA's projection is at about 4.4%. But it would not be surprising to see that come down in future reports. And clearly, the futures market thinks that there's been a movement towards a tighter ending stocks figure than, than what USDA is currently projecting, probably putting us back where we were in that 2011-2012 time frame, to some extent also last year as well. So. Uh, that's really the concern of the marketplace going forward with this tightening of stocks taking place 
um, that maybe USDA probably hasn't quite caught up with. So with that, I'm going to turn to Nathan Thompson. You've been looking at storage opportunities, and you know we're going to talk more about strategy later. But one of our question marks is, you know, what do we do? We've got some corn in inventory, uh, in many cases still substantial. You know, what kind of decisions are we looking at? What kind of opportunities are out there? Yeah, so I just want to start off looking at basically where we are in terms of forward contract bids for corn at uh, a location here in central Indiana, just to kind of uh, jump us off in that conversation. So if you look, the the kind of darker gold uh, line that runs across the bottom of the chart there, those are the forward cash contract bids for that local uh, elevator here in central Indiana. And you can see we don't see a lot of appreciation in those bids as we look over the next several months uh, of this marketing year. And really, we even see those, those uh, bids actually decline as we move forward. And again, you got to think about what's, what's going on in those bids. So again, part of that is carry in futures, which we have very little to no carry in corn futures uh, as we look over the, the remainder of this crop marketing year. Uh, and then also basis. And, and again, as you can see from the bids, there's very little appreciation in the basis bids as we look over the next couple of months. And that's what leads us to this uh, situation where those bids aren't increasing as we think about uh, storing out into the future. And then uh, the other two lines on the chart there uh, are what I call an, kind of an implied break-even price. And so basically those are the prices that we would need to sell for uh, if we were going to cover our storage costs. And so I've got an on-farm storage scenario. That's the, the gray line that kind of runs through the middle there where I'm just assuming one cent per bushel per month of on-farm storage costs and a 6% APR on the opportunity costs. And then the, the lighter gold line across the top there is that implied break-even uh, for a commercial storage scenario. So again, four cents per bushel per month of, of storage costs and the same opportunity cost. And so really what you're thinking about when you're looking at those lines is, okay, so if I have cash bid uh, opportunity for delivery for corn here in February of $6.44 is where we were at this morning, um, what would I need to be selling that corn for, say, in May or June in order to just offset those storage costs that I've assumed? So you can see, right, if we're looking at a June delivery, we'd need to be selling corn for $6.61 a bushel just to offset an on-farm storage cost scenario. At least based on my assumptions, you'd want to pencil in whatever um, costs were relevant for your farm. And then for that uh, commercial storage scenario, you're looking at a, a potential price of $6.73 just uh, to offset the cost and be at an equivalent position to that $6.44 today. So obviously you can see that the, the current bids that are out posted out there are not getting us anywhere close to those prices. Now there are other strategies that you could implement other than the, the forward cash contract that could potentially leave uh, uh, upside open to, to reaching those prices. But again, you know, those are very high prices. And so if you're holding on to corn, thinking about what you're going to do here over the next several months, uh, you, you really need to have a strategy in place of, um, you know, how you think you're going to get to the price levels that I have on the screen there for that storage to make sense economically. Yeah. So, Nathan, I think for most of our viewers, they, if they had corn in commercial storage, they've probably moved that by now. So most of them are probably thinking more about that on-farm storage scenario. And looking at uh, that 644, that's a pretty significant movement out to June or, or May, right? You're looking at a fairly sizable move there. What you're really betting on is primarily an improvement in futures prices, right? That's right. And, and again, there, there is, we've seen futures moving uh, very quickly lately. So that, that opportunity is certainly there. You know, there's opportunity for, for basis improvements as well as we get into the summer. And, you know, if there was a situation where we felt like uh, – 
Uh, maybe we're going to have a short crop next year. We could get some pops and bases in that time frame as well. But again, th you know, those are the types of things that you're gambling on if, if you're um, looking to get to these price levels. And I just think the key point here is to always remember that when that corn's in storage, it is incurring cost. That's right. You've taken a look at the basis tool? Yeah, so look a little more closely at what's happening on the basis side of things. From a corn perspective, really not a whole lot. Basis has been pretty steady since the beginning of the year or even going back into December. So here we're looking at corn basis uh, in central Indiana. The, the blue line there is just the historical three-year average. So that's kind of the normal trend that we would expect to see. The black line is what's happening in the current crop marketing year going back to the beginning of the marketing year in September. And so you can see here over the last several months that corn basis in this part of the state has been very steady and really, really close to or maybe slightly below that historical average, but, but pretty much following that trend. Um, on the next slide, I have, um, again, corn basis, but this time in southwest Indiana. And so again, you just, the, the basis tool has crop reporting districts for Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. I just try to look at several different locations to kind of get an idea. Again, there's not a whole lot different here. Um, the, the, again, basis in southwest Indiana has been kind of tracking along that historical uh, three-year average. The one thing is down there, it has been uh, a little bit weaker uh, than that historical average. So again, if you're looking at this week, maybe 10 cents under uh, that historical average, but not anything uh, that would make us think that it's, you know, any strong deviation from that uh, historical trend. So longer term, uh, you'd probably still stick with the idea that we'd see some improvement in basis as we head out into, say, May and June, maybe not all the way back to the blue line, but maybe some upward trend from where we're at today. That would be the, the uh, forecast that I would use. Again, you know, the research that we've done, there's a lot of factors that can impact how you think about that. One of those being the horizon, so how far into the future are you thinking? And, and the research that we did said that, you know, if you're thinking relatively short term, say over the next four to eight weeks, um, you would definitely think that it would move towards the blue line, but, but kind of continue to be uh, uh, at a little bit of a, a discount or running slightly weaker than that. If you look further than that, and again, at that point, you're getting out to the summer time frame where our research says that it's really hard to predict anyway. But as you look further, that horizon gets further into the future, you would generally expect to move back towards that, that historical average. Good point. So this is a little bit of a, a new, this is a new chart uh, that I've added this uh, month. The last uh, several months, we've been looking at um, uh, basis bids at a, uh, an elevator in um, uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. It's kind of a river market location. And so we were thinking about it and decided, uh, had some recommendations to maybe think about that a little bit differently. And so what I've done is taken um, all the locations that I have access to kind of along the, the river in southern Indiana, the Ohio River in southern Indiana and southern Illinois, and kind of average those together to create uh, what, what I'm calling kind of a, a river terminal basis uh, for southern Indiana and southern Illinois. And so what you can see, again, the blue line here is just the historical three-year average and kind of shows you what the pattern tends to be for those uh, markets in terms of, of basis, and then the black line being what's going on currently. And so you can see, again, we've uh, started out with weaker basis. Again, that goes back to um, late summer, early fall um, of 21, where we had a hurricane that was affecting uh, river markets and, and other export-related things. Uh, since that time, right, we've had basis strengthen right back uh, close to that, that historical three-year average. We're probably currently maybe five to ten cents uh, below that, but really following that pattern 
um, that we would typically expect to see for those, those markets. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting to think about those river markets in terms of their sensitivity to exports in particular, right? Yeah. And it does suggest that we're seeing some export movement, some good movement. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about us moving into a stronger export environment here these next few months. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out, whether or not we see any additional improvement. Yeah, well, that is the goal of this chart, right? Trying to get a, a feel on what's happening there on the export side of things as, as those terminals tend to be heavily driven by that. And so, yeah, it'll be really interesting to follow kind of where that, that goes these next several months, especially as it is relative to uh, ethanol plant basis. We've talked about a lot about, you know, um, ethanol versus export demand and how that's going to drive basis here over the, the remainder of the marketing year and even longer term. Like, what, what is the driver of basis uh, in today's market? So speaking of ethanol plant basis, you've updated that chart as well. That's right. And so, again, you know, I, I've, I've presented this chart several times, but just to, to give you an idea of why there's so much going on here. So we've had very uh, unusual situations over the past several years. And so you really got to take each of those years individually to understand uh, kind of how they fit into the average, and you really have to go further back to find a time frame that uh, I would designate as normal, which is dangerous, but nonetheless. So the, the blue line that kind of runs through the middle of the chart is 2015 to 2017 average. That's the last three-year period that I uh, don't have any kind of extreme events happening, and I'm, I'm calling normal. The, the green line uh, is the 1819, and you can see we have this big run-up in basis uh, in the, the spring, early summer. That had to do with the planning issues that we had in 2019 uh, that caused basis to, to really increase uh, in the eastern Corn Belt um, at those ethanol plants as they were trying to secure corn uh, moving forward. The red line is in the next year, 2019-2020, we see a big drop in basis there in about March. Again, that aligns with COVID. Uh, reduced travel demand, reduced ethanol demand that had a big impact on, on basis at those ethanol plants. And then obviously last year we see the big run up in basis there in the summer months. But with all of that as context, coming back uh, to the black line, which is a little bit hard to see because it runs through the middle there, that's what's happening this year. And again, we started with strong basis levels coming out of strong basis last summer. But we saw that really quickly revert to kind of more of a normal level uh, at the beginning of this crop marketing year. And that has really stayed pretty steady, which has been a little bit interesting as, you've, as you think about what's happened in terms of ethanol margins, ethanol production. But that ethanol plant basis in Indiana going back to you know, December has been you know, right at zero and hasn't shown us much one way or the other. So again, as you think about what's going on in the export side and then you know, what we're seeing in terms of at least the, the, the basis being a, a little bit of an indication of um, you know, what, what these ethanol plants are doing in terms of being aggressive for bidding for corn, where is our ultimate source of demand? Um, you know, ethanol, or excuse me, exports are really showing a lot more uh, positive movement on the basis side in terms of wanting to, to secure corn. Ethanol plant basis has just kind of been steady. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of where that goes uh, as we look forward. Yeah, the interesting thing to me as I look at this basis chart and think about what's going on this year is the fact that as the ethanol plants are either operating either at capacity or pretty close to capacity, they're obviously able to secure corn at what I would characterize as, as normal basis levels. Yeah. They haven't had to do anything extreme to, to get the corn in, which is kind of interesting. And, and at least in some locations where in recent years the ethanol plants have been the dominant bidders, yeah, they've been doing okay without having to, to bump the basis up. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But 
I mean, from your perspective, you're kind of expecting that blue line, that, that average, which was the 2015 to 2017 time frame, to kind of hold here the rest of the year the way it looks. Is that right? I mean, yeah. I, I have no, no information that would lead me to think otherwise, right? And again, you can look at this chart and see that we have wild movements one way or the other in the last several years for various reasons that can pop up. But uh, as far as, you know, looking forward, you know, you would expect that to kind of follow that normal trend. And again, like you said, it, it's, it's interesting because we normally see ethanol plants ethanol plant basis at a premium above, you know, other, other um, end user or not end users, other uh, elevators. And we don't have that premium built in. And so will we get to a point where maybe we see those ethanol plants bidding up, you know, above other local uh, sources of demand or not? And, and uh, time will tell uh, kind of how that factors in or if they just continue to, to secure corn at more normal basis levels. Yeah, it's just an to me it's an indication that they've got ample supplies to draw upon and, right. and really haven't had any difficulty securing corn supplies to run the plants. So you've taken a look at, at opportunities both for old crop and for new crop and I like the fact that you did a comparison of what's available today and actually you updated this this morning versus what we were showing a month ago when we did our last webinar. Yeah, so you know, we always include some sort of chart like this or, or figure like this to help people think about where are prices, you know, what are my opportunities? And, and when I made this chart, I just couldn't get rid of the numbers from last month because I was like, we have to make sure people realize what's, what's taken place here over the last several weeks. So again, looking at a May delivery. So I, I'm just trying to think of something, you know, um, within this crop marketing year for people that still have uh, corn in storage, you know, what sorts of prices should you be realistically be thinking about? So last month, you know, I was saying, well, if you were looking at May delivery, July futures were at $5.88. I went to the crop basis tool for central Indiana and, and came out with a uh, expectation of what I thought basis would be for May delivery of two cents over. That would put us at $5.90. Move forward four weeks, roughly a month uh, or so. This month's webinar, so this morning, I was looking at corn futures for July of $6.40, okay? So you're about 52 cents higher. Uh, again, I've got the same basis expectation. That hasn't really changed given that time frame's pretty far out. Uh, and that puts us at a cash price of $6.42 for May delivery. And so, you know, that's, that's a 52 cent increase in just a couple of weeks, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and so, you know, again, you got to be realistic in thinking about, you know, what it is that you're wanting to get out of corn that you still have in storage, what some different strategies might be. This would imply, uh, you know, a, a hedge strategy where you're going to hedge that uh, $6.40 uh, futures price and maybe speculate on some improvement in basis between now and um, the May delivery that I have here. And again, two cents over is not that much different than where we are currently on basis. And so uh, that $6.42 uh delivery price doesn't include storage costs that we talked about on the first slide. And so you, you got to factor all that in, you know, uh, delivery prices today are pretty doggone good, especially when you think about the storage costs you're going to incur to get out to May. The second or the bottom half of the slide here looks at a, a new crop uh, opportunity. So looking at harvest delivery this fall. Uh, and so you can see again, going back to last month, we were at $5.59 for new crop corn futures. I had us at 20 cents under for a basis expectation in central Indiana. That puts us cash price of $5.39. This morning, right, those new crop corn futures were at $5.89. Same 20, uh, negative 20 basis. That puts us at a cash price of $5.79. So, again, that's 40 cents higher than we were just a couple weeks ago. So, uh, time out here. I'm, I'm catching a math there, I think. $5.89 and 20 cent 
basis, you'd be at 569, right? 69. There you go. Well, you know, math can be hard sometimes. <laughs> so 569. So that's 30 cents higher. That's okay, Nathan. You're human. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, still, we're looking at, at cash prices uh, for, for fall delivery that are significantly higher, in my opinion, than they were just a couple weeks ago. And so, you know, you got to really be thinking, you know, about what your strategies are for new crop corn. There, you know, we could talk about a lot of different strategies, and there's a lot of information as far as what's going to affect that. There certainly is upside as we think about markets over the next uh, several months here. We talk a lot about the seasonality in futures, and so we would typically expect to see some, some improvement in futures here over the next several months uh, based on that seasonal pattern. But we're at very, very favorable f price levels, and, and it doesn't hurt to have people thinking about, you know, is this a point in time where we want to be thinking about making some small incremental sales uh, on those new crop uh, corn bushels. So I guess let's think about what would be the downside risk from here. And I guess I think of a couple of things. One is maybe the weather patterns change in South America and all of a sudden the weather down there is perfect and the production estimates instead of shrinking as a lot of people seem to expect, all of a sudden start going the other way. That's possible. I'm not saying it's gonna happen, but it, that, that's a risk. Um, the other risk, which we're going to talk about more a little later, is what happens to acreage this spring, right? Because that's going to have an influence here on those new crop prices. And probably as much as any year in recent memory, we've got some uncertainty about what the corn and soybean acreage numbers are going to look like. So we'll talk about that more a little later. But those are probably the two downside risks. The reason to hang on, Nathan, I think, based on your research, would be seasonality. Yeah. On a seasonal basis, you would suspect that we'd like to see maybe some continued strength into the early spring, maybe even mid-spring, right? That would yeah. be kind of normal. Yeah, no, and typically, you know, as we get to kind of the, the May, June, July timeframe, right, right around planting is you know, early season uh, that the crop is in the ground. That's when we tend to see, you know, what people like to refer to as a weather premium, right? So we, we have good weather, bad weather, and that can really start to... Uh, influence these markets and so uh, that that time frame would be when we historically see those peaks but any time between now and then we we typically think about you know incremental sales kind of as that market is uh, following that that seasonal pattern of, of kind of increasing prices all right so let's turn our attention to soybeans real quick so usda did make a small change in the balance sheet for soybeans uh, they increased the crush estimate, I think, by 25 million bushels, and that brought down the carryover by 25 million bushels as well. That puts our ending stocks as a percentage of usage at about 7.4%. We were up close to 8% when I showed this chart a month ago, so it's a little tighter on the U.S. side than, than what we had before. But again, I think the attention is really focused on what's going on in South America, not so much on, on what's taking place with the U.S. balance sheet. Um, USDA did reduce their expected Brazilian production. This month they pulled it back by 184 million bushels. Uh, CONAB, the Brazilian agency, just this morning released their estimate and compared to their prior estimate, they pulled their expectation uh, for Brazilian production down by 550 million bushels. So that explains, I think, for our viewers why we were seeing the strength in the soybean futures market this morning. It was the fact that the Brazilian agency pulled the back their production estimate much harder than what, what USDA did. I think USDA is taking a fairly conservative perspective here. I would expect them to see that pull back their numbers on future reports as we get a little farther into the production season. Um, USDA also reduced their estimate of Argentina's soybean production by 55 million bushels. Interesting that they pulled back soybeans a little bit and didn't touch their corn number. I think a lot of people would have expected both of those to come down. 
Um, when you combine those and look at what's taking place, um, if you start looking at the CONAB numbers and think about the major exporters, Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay coming out of South America, that starts to pull South American production not all the way back to 2017's level, but kind of in between that 2017 and 2018 level on your chart. And if that happens, that really does tighten supplies on a worldwide basis. A little bit like what we did on the corn, if you look at the major exporters ending stocks as a percentage of usage, uh, USDA's numbers got it at 15% this year, down from 17% last year. You go back and look at 2011, 2012, those numbers were in that 14 to 16% range. It would not be surprising to see that come down on future reports. In fact, if you, if you plug in ConAB's numbers uh, that they released today, you would already be back in the ballpark of where we were in, in 2011. I didn't actually compute that exactly, but that would be pretty close. And if we see any further weather problems in South America, any further yield reductions, obviously it would tighten it even more. That would, that's the bullish case for, for soybeans. So uh, like you did on corn, you've looked at current opportunities versus storage opportunities for soybeans, as well as some new crop uh, analysis as well. So take a look at that, Nathan. Yeah, so again, start out, let's just look at these. Um, Forward cash contract bids for soybeans at a location here in central Indiana. Uh, very similar to corn, right? Those, those cash bids, again, the, the darker gold line across the bottom there, are relatively flat or even decreasing as we look uh, out forward here over the next several months. Uh, and so, again, that just is two factors into that. One, right, carry in futures market. We have little to no carry in the soybean futures market, similar to corn, and then appreciation and basis. And, again, there's a little bit of appreciation in the soybean market, or at least in these bids that, I, that I've used here. But, again, not a whole lot that would, would change kind of the, the trend in, in that line there. And so, again, comparing those with some, some implied break-even prices, so if you were going to store – you know, here over the next several months and forgo the $16.10 cash price that's available today, what would you need to sell for? Again, uh, on-farm storage scenario and a commercial storage scenario. And so, again, if you're going to look at storing, you know, into the summer, say June, you'd need to be selling soybeans for $16.46 a bushel uh, under that on-farm storage scenario and $16.58 per bushel on that commercial storage scenario. And so, again, those are very big numbers. And as you think about soybeans that you maybe have in storage, you know, how are you going to get from the $16.10 um, uh, cash bid that's available today to those prices? What strategies might fit? It certainly isn't going to be this forward cash contract based on, on the bids that are out there today. And so you need to be a little more creative in thinking about, you know, what, what it is that you think is going to get you there, whether it's futures basis or anything like that. So it's an interesting market structure, both for corn and soybeans. When you look at the bid structure that's out there, it's providing a disincentive to store. And that's indicative of a market situation where the market is recognizing that supplies are somewhat tight, uh, wanting to bring those quantities of bushels or bushels of corn and soybeans to market now versus in the future, um, which has some other implications for the futures market, right? For, but that's the right. basis side that people are looking at is, is relatively strong on, on a nearby uh, the other point I would make is there's a couple of markets that I kind of monitor on a daily basis. I would encourage viewers that are, that are thinking about making some sales to monitor this pretty tightly because I've seen some situations where that basis changed significantly from one day to the next, right? Yeah. Um, in one of those markets I was watching uh, here in central Indiana, they were offering a premium out a couple of months for a little while, and then it disappeared. 
Uh, obviously, they had something going on internally that caused them to do that. And so you need to pay attention, right? That's, that's, and that's one of your messages with the basis tool as well. Right? That's exactly right. And that's, that's, I've seen the same thing, right? There's been a lot of volatility in those basis bids kind of both directions. And so paying attention to what's going on and, and looking for those opportunities. And again, that's a great point. The basis tool also gives you a little bit of a, uh, a way to gauge, right, where those basis bids fit into maybe where you would expect them to be for that time of year. So again, starting out here, we're looking at soybean basis, central Indiana. Uh, what's going on currently is the black line. And then I've got the historical two-year average for soybeans there as the blue line. The two-year average is just typically uh, what I would use based on some research that we did as, as the best uh, uh, forecast for soybean basis. But you gotta, you got to really think about what's going on here. Right? So we did some research that kind of led to these thumb rules, three years for corn, two years for soybeans. Um, but... I don't want to get too technical here, but you know, looking at two-year average for soybean basis, you can really be swayed one way or the other depending on what happens in those years. And while that might be the best forecast over a long period of time, if we think about what's going on in here, it, it's interesting to see that current basis bids are weaker than that historical average. That kind of catches your attention at, at first glance. Uh, but if you think about it, right, what is in that two-year average? Well, last year we had very strong soybean basis all year. And so that could potentially be pulling that up. So, you know, we were talking before and I looked, if you looked at a five-year average, and again, there's, there's very little difference between two, three, four, five, right? That, you're really starting to split hairs at some point. We just kind of stick with the thumb rules that we've created. But if you, if you just take the last five years instead of the last two years, and the reason you would do that, right, you pull in more years, you kind of smooth out that moving average. When you do that, right, it pulls that, that historical average, it pulls that blue line down, and we actually have stronger soybean basis relative to that five-year average now than um, um, what that historical five-year average. So, so just the tool is really useful in that sense to think about those sorts of differences and changes. And so, you know, you kind of have to put into context what, what's kind of going on in some of those charts. So I have to plug the tool here, Nathan, because one of the cool things about the tool is if you want to look at a five-year average, you can do it. That's right. The data is out there. Uh, there's a box, we don't show it on this particular screen, but there's a box out there that allows you to select the years that go into that blue line average. And you can, in a, with a couple of clicks, look at a five-year average instead of a two-year average. The other point I would make is that when we look at, when you use the averages to forecast basis, what you're essentially doing is assuming that the market structure is unchanged from the period in time when the averages uh, that, you're, that you've computed are, were, were taking place. So when you compare today or this current year's basis to the two year, most recent two-year average, you're just kind of saying, well, I think the market structure now is the same as it was during the prior two years. How's it compare? Well, I think your point is, might not be exactly the way it was the last two years. We actually had some unusual things going on the last couple of years, which is why you might want to look at a longer-term uh, basis. Um, and the other thing, of course, you can do is just compare a, a single year in the past to the current basis, which I, I find kind of fun to do and, and interesting as well. Yeah, and I think that, so both of those points are very important, right? One is you have the flexibility to average across as many years as you want. And again, as you pull more years in, you smooth out, right? And so that's why you would think about maybe adding a five-year average to look at. But then looking at the individual years, because sometimes for me, like I, I forget what happened the last two years, but I can go and look and I can tell you, all right, two years ago, this is what the basis pattern was relative to 
what's going on and then last year and then you can kind of use that to inform okay well with that now I know a little bit more about that two-year average and maybe I decide I want to pull in some extra years to kind of smooth that out so yeah the tool has all of that flexibility so you know I would definitely encourage people to tap into that and think about some different scenarios they want to go and look at yeah I think our message is when you if you go to use the tool don't just use the default values Play with it a little bit and see how it changes, and, and maybe that'll help you make some better decisions. So you've taken a look at Southwest Indiana as well. Yeah, so again, it looks pretty similar here uh, in Southwest Indiana. We've had, uh, again, basis for soybeans tracking pretty similar to that historical pattern, but again, maybe 10 or 15 cents below. That, that gap has been narrowing there in Southwest Indiana, so that's kind of an interesting point in our newsletter last week. I wrote about kind of the, the bump in basis that we saw uh, two weeks ago. Um, and, you know, again, this southwest Indiana is, is supposed to be a little bit of indicative of maybe some export demand given the, the river market there. But, again, these are regional averages, and so there's a lot more than just the river that's reflected in this chart. And that's why I've got the next chart, uh, which is, again, this, this new chart that I've put together where I'm, I'm averaging across only terminals that are on the river in southern uh, Indiana and southern Illinois. And, again, there you can see that um, – those uh, current basis bids are actually above that historical average, which would indicate some strength there for, for soybean basis along the river market, which, uh, again, is reflective, at least in part, uh, on, on what's going on in the export side of things. And as you look at that chart, you can really see how basis collapsed in the fall. And it, and it tends to be weak in that September, October time frame anyway, but you can see the impact of the storms and the closure of some of those export terminals down closer to New Orleans and how that fed back up the river, which is kind of interesting as well. So you've taken a look at some May delivery options as well as harvest delivery. And then, again, you've done the comparison to what we saw last month. And it's even an even starker comparison when you look at last month versus today on soybeans, right? Yeah, an even bigger change here. So, I, again, I won't go through all the numbers. I'll just kind of stick to this month's, but I'll, I'll refer back to those kind of uh, as I'm going through. But, you know, looking at just a scenario where we want to look at May delivery, so something in this crop marketing year for, for bushels that you still have on hand, We've got uh, July soybean futures this morning at $6.15 per bushel, uh, which again is you know, $1, uh, $2.15, $2.20 stronger than what it was uh, just a couple weeks ago, which is, which is crazy. Uh, and then uh, I've got a, 15 cents, a positive $0.15 cent basis uh, for central Indiana that I just pulled out of the crop basis tool. Uh, for that May time frame, which puts us at a, a $16.30 cash price uh, for May delivery for soybeans. So again, you know, if you were thinking about a strategy to kind of look at that price, you'd want to be hedging where we're at on 16, 15 uh, futures, and then you'd be speculating on that basis expectation that I've, I've built in there of, of getting from where we are to 15 cents over. Um, on the, the new crop side of things, so looking at uh, maybe what some opportunities are for delivery uh, harvest this fall, we've got uh, November 22 soybean futures this morning at $14.58 per bushel. Uh, my expectation of basis based on, on information in the crop basis tool for central Indiana is $0.30 cents, uh, under that. So hopefully I've got my math right here this time. Uh, that puts us at a $14.28 per cash price for fall delivery. And again, look at that compared to where we were just, you know, three or four weeks ago. Um, you know, we're at, what is that, a $1.60 or so difference 
Um, that's, a, that's a pretty remarkable change in a really short period of time. And so again, you know, we've talked about some of the things that are going on here from both the supply and demand side of things. There is certainly upside potential in these markets. There's certainly uh, seasonal uh, patterns that would tell us that we would expect to see some improvement in futures here uh, as we think about what's going to happen uh, moving into the spring and early summer months. But again, you know, $14.28 um, on new crop soybean bushels are very good prices uh, and things that people should be at least sitting down and thinking about, you know, what is my plan if it's, if it's not to, to make uh, sales today, you know, over the next several months, what is my marketing plan? What, you know, when do I want to pull the trigger uh, and some different increments as we kind of move through and see how things unfold? Yeah, again, so you think about from a seasonal basis, we would expect to see on a normal basis uh, some improvement here over the next couple of months, but there's no guarantee of that. Right? Right. There's clearly some downside risk. Most of that downside risk is based on weather patterns in South America. And I guess for our viewers are probably well acquainted with this from last summer, how difficult it is to take weather forecasts and turn those into yield projections, right? We had a lot of trouble with that in the U.S., and a lot of us were surprised with respect to some of the dry areas in the U.S. that had surprisingly good yields last fall. So uh, keep that in mind. But there is that seasonal element there. The other point that I would make, and, and this chart or this table really kind of helps illustrate that, if you're not in a mode of writing down these pricing opportunities once a, once a week, you know, just take, take a notebook and write them down and force yourself to think about the opportunities that are out there and why you're you know, choosing to do what you do or not do. Um, very instructive, and of course the, the movement we saw over the last uh, roughly four weeks is unusual. Right? We don't usually see that kind of movement, but it is useful to force yourself to write those down, think about it, and ask yourself, you know, do I want to make a sale at these price levels? So, and the other point I would make is based on the seasonal pattern and based on what's going on in South America, you probably do want to make some sales of new crop this spring, right? Uh, so in other words, be of a mindset and be ready to pull the trigger. All right? Right. Have, have that thought uh, in advance. All right, so Michael, we want to turn and, and look at some things with respect to what's going on in corn production versus soybeans. And you've been looking at nitrogen rates, nitrogen cost, and maybe how that factors into people making that corn versus soybean decision. Yeah, Jim, before we get to this slide, we did ask a question, the Ag Economy Barometer, and I believe, Jim, that 57% of those that those that were going to plant corn uh, were going to keep the same end rate, and it was about 30, about a third uh, that we're going to actually going to reduce the end rate. And, and what we want to talk about in this slide is there is some incentive to at least think about taking that end rate maybe down 20 pounds or so. And that's what this slide is illustrating. Uh, the 40 cents is, is, is similar to where we were last year. It's not that much different from a production maximum. Uh, you, you, you know, use 194 pounds, get 100% of the maximum yield. Uh, if you take that down to 90 cents, about where we're at today, uh, you're looking at a, an end rate of 171, so backing that off about 20 pounds and only losing 2% of the yield. And, and certainly from a profit standpoint, uh, that makes more sense than keeping the end rate uh, at the same level you've, you've, you've had it for the last several years. Yeah, so thinking that in percentage terms, you're really pulling that nitrogen rate, that optimal rate, down about 10% yes. if you're buying nitrogen at current prices. And I think that's a good point. When I've talked about this with some producers, 
one of the points they make is not everybody's buying nitrogen at the price that's yeah. out there today, which is the 90 cent price. Some people were at the 80 cent mark, maybe they were at the 60 cent mark. So there are gonna be some differences across farms depending on when you lock that input in, right? Yes, definitely. Um, this slide, this slide has been, is, is quite different uh, than last month, just like some of the information that Nathan was talking about is quite different. And, and what's changed? Well, the, the contribution margins for corn and soybeans are better, particularly for soybeans, uh, compared to a month ago. And so let me explain this chart uh, so everybody understands what we're doing here. Uh, if, you, if you think about the costs that we're excluding from the contribution margin, that's the costs that are represented in that overhead bucket. That's your cash rent or land opportunity cost. Uh, which on high productivity soil would be uh, approximately $300, 290 to $300 would be, would be an average uh, for that. Uh, it also includes labor, uh, which in our budgets is about $35 to $40, depending on the scenario you're looking at, uh, would be in the overhead bucket. And then, and then machinery ownership, that would be approximately $80 to $90 per acre. And so, and so if you look at the $406 for high productivity, you've got that cash rent, you've got machinery ownership, uh, and you've got labor, and they amount to $406. Let's start with that high productivity. Look at the difference between corn and soybean contribution margin and overhead. That's economic profit. Uh, the economic profit uh, right now on high productivity soil is, is very, very large. Uh, probably as large as what we saw at this time last year. Uh, last year turned out better than we thought it was going to be from a budget standpoint, but this is a you know, very good sign right now on high productivity soil. It looks like there's, there's considerable profit. Uh, as we move to the average productivity, both corn and soybeans there are also uh, above the overhead cost. But when you move to the average, notice that there's a bigger advantage for soybeans uh, than, than, there is, than, than there is at the high productivity. At the high productivity, the, yes, soybeans has a higher contribution margin, but the difference is smaller. Uh, as we move to average productivity and then we move to low productivity, soybeans looks much more attractive. And, and that's really changed uh, in the last month or two. When we were, when we were doing this webinar last month, uh, we, were, we were talking about, uh, talking about don't count corn out. Corn's going to be very competitive for acres. Now we're leaning a little bit more towards there's going to there, there's going to be a lot of pressure for soybean acres to increase not only not only in Indiana across the Corn Belt and in the United States and I think these figures are help supporting that notion. So Michael, help me out a little bit and, and help our viewers out. Tell us a little bit about what corn and soybean prices you have embedded in yes, this chart. Yes, they're a little bit lower than what uh, what Nathan was talking about. Five sixty corn and fourteen dollars soybeans, and so it'd be even a little bit better <laughs> if we used the prices that Nathan was talking about. And that just that just tells you how fast these prices have been changing. Yeah, so for people making a decision today, and I think I've been telling people that the decision on corn versus soybeans is going to be fluid all the way up to the time planters roll. But if you're making a decision today, it certainly suggests, and, particularly the high productivity soils, soybeans. And, and typically when you do a budget, you, you can let that budget sit for a while, come back to a month. Yeah, it might be a little different. It didn't change very much. I mean, I'm talking the last five or six years. That's been the case. Not this year. Uh, you, may, you don't necessarily have to redo the budget every week. I do, just simply because I enjoy uh, redoing the budget every week, but every other week at least because costs change a little bit. Uh, and so you want to make sure you know what the break-even price, uh, you know, what, what your break-even price looks like uh, before, while, while you're look, looking at your marketing plan. And I guess the other thing to think about there is when you think about the cost that you've got embedded, compared to last year, you've bumped the cost up across these budgets, and what's the ballpark number? Yeah, for number? corn, it's getting close to 25%, and for soybeans, 15%. Okay. You know, obviously higher on corn because of the nitrogen 
uh, the nitrogen cost uh, skyrocketed. Okay. Uh, looking at uh, 2021 and, and, and 2022, I, I wanted to talk about this slide just to show you that the prospects for 22 continue to improve. They're still not as high as 21, but, but uh, as I've indicated before in the, on these webinars, 21 was, was the, one of the best years in the last 50 years. It would be right up there. If it's not the top, it would be in the top three uh, in terms of net farm income since 1973. You know, 1973 is kind of a, a break there and, and when we started exporting more, and so that's kind of a natural uh, a, a time period to start with. And so, and, so, and so 21 was really good. 22 is not terrible. I mean, as soybean prices increase, but also some strength in corn prices, even with these high costs, we're looking at some very strong net farm income in, in 22. I did want to contrast what I'm showing here with the USDA ERS net farm income forecast. Uh, if you listen to that, uh, it, was, it was released about a week ago. Uh, if you listen to that, they were expecting net farm income to be down 4.5%. Well, it's, it's different for corn and soybeans. I'm expecting that to be considerably larger than 4.5% that they were talking about for, for U.S. net farm income. On the cost side, they were expecting costs to be up 5%. Uh, that would be all types of farms. Uh, again, for our corn and soybeans, I'm expecting costs to be up 20% if you average the, the corn and the soybean. That's the main reason why 22 does not look as good as 21. Prices are strong right now, very strong. Uh, if you compare them to what they were last February, February 21, it's just our cost structure is higher. And I guess maybe to highlight how much this chart has changed over the last 30 days is earlier we were talking about 2022 having returns that were in the ballpark of what we saw in 2020. Precisely. It was almost identical. And now we're, you know, instead yeah. of, that would have been roughly, yeah. what, I think 125. Yeah. And now we're looking at in the ballpark of 200, right? Yeah. Big and, change. And obviously this has implications where they, we're not going to focus on cash rents and land values today, but all, it obviously has implications on, on the strength we've seen in cash rents and land values. That's probably going to stick around for a while. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this corn versus soybeans. And one of the things we typically look at when we're looking at corn versus soybeans is the soybean to corn price ratio. Don't do that this year. I'm showing this chart uh, to illustrate why that's a little dangerous this year. Because if you use the prices that Nathan was talking about earlier, 570 corn and 1430 soybeans, that would be a price ratio of 2.5. That's very similar to the average. That's not giving you the clear signal of how profitable soybeans really are uh, compared to corn. Because this year, what's so different about this year is we've got that huge cost uh, increase uh, compared to previous years, particularly for fertilizer on corn. And so this ratio is not as usable uh, as, it, as it perhaps has been in the past. And so, and so, and so our ratio, just the bottom line here, the ratio is, is close to average. Uh, but that's, that's not telling us necessarily that we should be 50-50. Uh, it, it it, you know, soybeans, particularly on that low productivity and average productivity, are very, very competitive. So for clarity, on some of our previous webinars, one of the points we made a couple of different times was the fact that you shouldn't just throw in the towel on corn yeah. uh, without doing a careful look at your own budgets. That's shifted quite a bit, and I would argue that what's really happened is the market has awakened to the fact that we need soybean acres in uh, 2022, and then the market is trying to encourage or stimulate uh, more yeah. planting of soybeans than what we was encouraging earlier. Yeah, precisely. And when I, when I do uh, when I do workshops around the state, one of the things I talk about is the fact that uh, uh, how big the market share uh, for soybeans really is in in Brazil. 
you know, when you have weather problems in a country that contributes 40 percent, uh, has a 40 percent market share on the production of soybeans, you, you expect prices to change rather dramatically with, with, talk, with, with tight stocks to use, and that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, good point. Uh, if we look at the, this chart, also has changed, but we were always talking about the fact that corn and soybean has similar profitability uh, for this case farm. Uh, and this case farm is in a region where, where corn is very competitive. Typically, we have we have some continuous corn sometimes in West Central Indiana, so it's not in a region necessarily where corn is not competitive uh, compared to soybeans. Uh, but but as this chart indicated, with that with that large increase in soybeans, it's actually an advantage uh, towards soybeans even on this case farm. Yeah, good point. Uh, looking at that a little closer, I'm using $14 soybean price. Uh, Nathan was, uh, was talking about $14.30, so maybe somewhere in between that $14 and $14.50 line is where we need to be, be talking about. And I don't want to get too repetitive here, but again, this just shows you that on that average productivity, you'd have to have pretty high corn prices uh, for corn to look better uh, than soybeans. And, and on the high productivity, though, uh, is a little bit different. Uh, corn's hanging in there a little bit better on that high productivity soil. And so the bottom line, we're still going to see a competition for acres uh, in Indiana. What's changed uh, a little bit is, is I don't think we're necessarily going to be 50-50. I think it's going to be slanted towards more soybeans. And that isn't that different from what we've seen the last five or six years. But I think that's going to be the case again this year. And I would argue, compared to last year, we're going to see more shifting than, than what we have. Yes. Uh, right? So, and it's been interesting. I guess you and I have both been doing some meetings around the state and visiting with producers. And we've talked to a number of producers that are making some shifts. And it's, uh, the magnitude of the shift is a little unclear, but clearly people are thinking about this, right? Yeah, and one of the things that, that, that we talk about uh, when, we, when we talk about this corn versus soybeans is you look at the high productivity soil and you look at the total cost per acre, it's right at $1,100 per acre. So it's some sticker shock saying, do I want to put in a crop at $1,100 per acre? Do I want to plant more corn and soybeans when I'm spending $1,100 per acre? And I think that, that enters people's mindset a little bit uh, when they're looking at corn versus soybeans. I think you finance people call that a capital constraint. <laughs> yeah, there could be a capital constraint there. Though having said that, solvency and liquidity is pretty good, and so don't count corn out. You do the budget uh, and, and compare the profitability between the two. Uh, what we're trying to do here is just show you how much difference there really is in the I states uh, between this corn versus soybean acreage. It, there's less difference on average between Illinois and Indiana, but certainly since 2007, uh, Illinois had more corn, uh, uh, corn uh, than, than uh, soybeans uh, compared to Indiana. Indiana is the green line here, and so we're kind of on the bottom there. Uh, you know, Illinois is the brown line, and then Iowa is the black line. It's very uncommon for, for, for Iowa to drop down to that 1.25, but you can notice we, we, it came very close in 21. Uh, and so if, if, if Iowa's going to have more, uh, more soybean acres, that's going to uh, take that ratio to about the lowest it's been since before 2007. So that would be quite different uh, than what we typically see in Iowa if we see more soybeans in Iowa. Illinois, probably closer to 50-50. It was very close to that last year. And then the Indiana hanging below that 50-50 like it has for the last several years. And I guess uh, for our viewers, we did look at the corn nitrogen rate calculator numbers for Iowa as well as Indiana. Yeah. We only showed the slide for, for Indiana. But actually, the results are quite similar yeah. for Iowa, right? Yeah, so it, the incentive to yeah. maybe shift acres is probably about as strong in Iowa as it is here. Is that correct? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's about it's it's very similar. Uh, one of the, you know what we're not we're not uh, talking. What we haven't shown uh, necessarily is the, is the fact that that Iowa corn yields are better. Uh, than the Indiana corn yields on average, and so that's why you see more continuous corn in Iowa. There's, there, there's, it, it's, it's less of a problem uh, from a profitability standpoint than it is in the Eastern Corn Belt. We just haven't seen much continuous corn in, in Indiana since 2007. But the one uh, constraint on continuous corn is you typically look at bumping up the, the end rate. This is a year when it, that's, yes. a, that's a bitter pill that's to swallow. That's a very good point, yeah. That's a bitter pill to swallow yeah. at these kind of nitrogen prices, right? Yeah. So uh, Michael and I have been debating quite a bit what might happen in the Western Corn Belt. I'm personally inclined to think we might see more shifting than Michael thinks in, in the Western Corn I'm, Belt. I'm but starting to become a believer with the recent <laughs> change in soybean prices. Yeah. But I, I think it's going to yeah. be fluid, and uh, the market's going to continuously respond. And I, we didn't put it up earlier, but Informa had uh, released, uh, I think, some acreage estimates here about 10 days ago. And they suggested a fairly uh, small change in soybean acreage, I think, of only about 600,000 acres and uh, uh, increase in soybean acres. And I think the market clearly is thinking that's not enough, right? So. Uh, this is just looking at Indiana a little bit closer, looks from 2007, so we can see the numbers a little bit better. Uh, and, and definitely in 17, 18, there was a strong advantage towards soybeans. Uh, we had some trade issues <laughs> back in those days, and so that's partly what was going on. Soybean price was relatively weak uh, compared to corn. But even in 1920 and 21, uh, we, you, we, we've been 95%, 96% in 21, and in between uh, 90 and 96% in 19 and 20. And so certainly seeing something like 20, 2020 or 2021 is, is, is would be my best guess at this point of, of where we might end up in terms of the ratio of corn to soybean acreage. Um, just finally, I, I did talk about upward pressure on cash rents. It's just a slightly different way of looking at that. The net return to land is, is going to, it looks like it's going to be above cash rent for three straight years if prices hold uh, in 22 and costs don't increase more than they already have. It's been a while since we've seen three, three state years above above that uh, uh, cash rent line. We have to go back to that 7 to 13 period, and we all can see what happened to cash rent during that period. And so, uh, and so you start asking yourself, are we in line to see uh, similar increases? I'm not there yet. Uh, I, I don't think cash rent is going to do what it did from 7 to 13, but it really depends on how good 22 really turns out and then what the prospects look like past 22. And so certainly some upward pressure on cash rents. It's just a question mark whether that's going to have legs into 23, 24, 25. I would argue looking at the chart, Michael, it probably does have legs into 23. Yeah, I, I would agree. Since, since the 22 keeps improving, that's certainly going to be a very positive influence on 23. And so I would not be surprised. I mean, this is, this is a long ways out there, folks, but I would not be surprised 5%, 10% increase in 23. Uh, when we start negotiating in 22, there's going to be some tough negotiations in, in the fall of 22 because it looks like you're going to be coming off a pretty good year, and, and, and probably the prospects for 23 are not going to look horrible. Uh, and so there's going to be uh, uh, negotiations are going to be tough again in, in the fall of 22 for 23 rents. And as we think about spring auction season for farmland sales, uh, the ag economy barometer these last couple of months, the both the short and longer term index has been coming down a little bit. But I don't think that really reflects a negative viewpoint. I think it reflects the idea that prices have already gone up quite a bit. Yeah. But given what's going on now, uh, it's going to be pretty strong. Yeah, to see a 20, 30% increase in, in both, you know, from 21 to 22 and from 22 to 23, that would be a bit of a stretch. But certainly seeing, seeing some upward pressure, 5, 10% in that, in that 
you know, you know, five, ten percent compared to where we are today, you can start to see how that could easily happen. Yeah. So let's just kind of wrap things up here. And uh, thinking about where we're at in these both corn and soybean markets, we're in a weather market, right? It's a South American weather market, and we're not maybe acclimated to as, that happening as often as it does in the summertime here. But I think that has some implications with respect to marketing decision making. It means you need to be ready to pull the trigger. Uh, it needs you, means you need to be monitoring very carefully, uh, not only basis, as we've encouraged in the past, but obviously these futures prices and, and look at the opportunities and be ready to make some sales, not only on old crop, but also on new crop. But think about that on an ongoing basis uh, going forward here. Um, and so with that, uh, we're going to have our, our next Outlook program, which is actually going to be a podcast because of some travel challenges that we're facing. Both Michael and I will be at the Commodity Classic down in New Orleans. And so instead of doing a, a video program like this, we'll do our next Outlook on the podcast, the Purdue Commercial Agcast. And if you're registered for this, you'll obviously have the opportunity to, to link into that, and we'll, we'll make that uh, available. It's all the details will be on our website, purdue.edu slash commercialag. So with that, I want to thank everybody for joining us, and I want to thank uh, our participants today, Michael Langemeyer and Nathan Thompson, for their help. And on behalf of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minnert. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.